Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? I just sniffed this most amazing flower, and I just think, peace and love, man. I think we don't need to have any conflict at all for the foreseeable future. Well, that, that does sound like the full Coachella experience, but uh, before, we, <laughs> before we go too far down that line, uh, that means we'll be uh, discussing this side of paradise this episode. And of course, we're not doing it alone. So uh, say hello to our guest, William. Hello, I am William. I'll be joining the podcast for this episode as a guest. Fantastic. It's uh, lovely to have you here. Uh, as we always do at the top of the show, we uh, we like to ask our guests what their kind of history with Star Trek is and, and how they came to it. So yeah, what, what's your history with Star Trek? Well, that's not a very short story. Uh, probably began back in the 1990s. Uh, I was watching a lot of television. I'm from Ireland, so uh, I remember seeing uh, the tail end of an episode of the original series on the BBC. The episode was returned tomorrow. I won't get into it here because it's not the episode we're here to discuss. But if you're familiar with Return to Tomorrow, it has a very wild ending. It's like, what the hell is this? And then a little later, I recall um, watching uh, bits and pieces of The Next Generation. And then somewhere about the mid-90s, my family got Sky. And if, uh, if if you're from Ireland or the United Kingdom and you were alive in the 1990s, you might be aware of the significance of that because Sky had an enormous licensed amount of American television. Famously, it was the home of The Simpsons, but it was also the home of X-Files, Stargate, and mm-hmm. every one of the Star Trek spin-offs. It had Deep Space Nine, it had Voyager, and The Next Generation. The other shows, uh, well, not the animated series, but the other shows hadn't come out yet. And at that point, I was watching Sky all the time. I was watching Star Trek all the time. I was taping it off the TV onto VHS tapes. I was going online to read uh, stuff on Star Trek, you know, fan websites, that kind of thing. Basically, when I started going online, it was mostly to talk about Star Trek. And I've now been doing that for like uh, over a quarter of a century. That's basically it. Fantastic. Well, we're very pleased to be able to give you the opportunity to talk even more about Star Trek today. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, we're looking forward to the discussion then. But um, before we get to the discussion itself, uh, Kev, would you care to give us our usual summary? All right. The Enterprise is looking into a colony, or what they think will be the ruins of a colony, since they accidentally built it near these Bertolt rays that should have destroyed everyone on it within three years. Instead, they land and discover a sort of idyllic paradise of a world where everyone is still alive and healthy and acting a little strange. Uh this escalates when uh, one of the colonists, I believe her name is Layla, uh, tries to induct Spock into the little culture by having him sniff these spores of this plant. And that makes him unwilling to go back to Enterprise and instead want to live a peaceful existence on the planet itself. As it turns out, these flowers with their spores, they infect people. They give a symbiotic relationship where they protect them from harm and death but at the same time make them too peaceful to want to do anything other than just hang out on a farm and eat vegetables. Uh, it infects most of the rest of the crew of the Enterprise, except for Kirk. When he finally succumbs, he is able to overcome it through sheer force of will and love for his ship. Uh, he is able to beam Spock back aboard and 
provoke him into fighting him, which get, which also releases the spore's hold because strong emotion does that. They rig up a device to release the hold of the spores and rest the colony, and rest the people on the colony, and are able to get them out of there. And that's about it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, pretty pretty well-known episode all round, I would say, this one. But um, let's see what we thought of it. So, uh, William, why don't you kick us off this time? How did you find this one? Well, I initially picked uh, this episode as the one to guest on for this podcast because for a long time, um, it's gone up and down. This has been one of my favorite episodes of the series. And occasionally, I said it's my favorite episode, period. And I vacillate on that as I vacillate on a lot of things. But... I feel it's a really great episode, especially for Spock. Uh, uh, Dorothy Fontana's script allows for a certain amount of tragedy for Spock, which is in some ways kind of surprising. The episode acknowledges that what happens to him is very painful because it's forcing him out of his shell. And it ends with that ambiguous note that this was actually a happy time for him. So for everyone else, this is something to be overcome. This is something where they're snapped out of it, with the exception of Layla Kalomi herself. Uh, they look back on it with a certain amount of regret. But for Spock, this is one of the nicest things that's happened to him, and he really needs to put it behind him. And that's such a tense, such an emotional tension, intensity, intensity of the character. Short version, like The Naked Time, this is a good example of uh, DC Fontana digging into the character of Spock, getting at what makes him tick, and producing something really beautiful. I think. Excellent, good stuff. Um, Kev, how did you find it? Yeah, I I knew nothing about this episode going in, honestly, and it was just such a delight. Um, it's another great example. I think I've liked the comedy episodes of this show more or less, almost sometimes more than dramatic ones. Like Naked Time, I enjoyed. This, um, what was Shore Leave? I had a great time with. And so I just think, and this, I guess, will qualify as a comedy episode. There's a tragedy in it, too, as William was talking about. But the run-up until then of just, oh, yeah. like, McCoy McCoy turning into, like, a Southern gentleman. And, uh, I mean, that's, I guess, the most shtickiest part of the episode. The rest of the comedy is really just, like, Shatner acting off of everyone being brainwashed. And it's not even really jokes. It's just, like, funny to watch. It's just really silly and goofy. And I I was really keyed into that. And then you have these like big dramatic moments at the end, like their fight, which we'll get into more detail, I'm sure, is like really heartbreaking stuff. And then you have that last line, which I think might increase my episode score by a whole point. We'll get into that at the end, but <laughs> um, it's, yeah, there's so much going on here that is just, I really love. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an episode which has got a lot of um, a lot of strengths to it. Uh, it's also got one noticeable weakness, which we'll we'll get to. But I think there's um, a real opportunity to kind of yeah, like you said, explore the the character dynamics here without kind of overly focusing on the on the sci-fi plot. It's also one of the things that makes this show incredibly time locked because you know this. I mean, this had to be made in 1967, right? I mean, oh, yeah. You know, it's about hippies, it's about drugs, it's about getting high, it's about the conflict between, uh, you know, individuality and society. All these things are kind of wrapped up in it. It's, it's, it's really clear. I mean, if you never, if you knew nothing about this episode at all and were just like reading it like that, you would know precisely where this was made. Yeah, I, it is funny 
I, as you alluded to earlier, JJ was just at like Coachella uh, 2023 and like the people there would be the kinds of people everyone behind this episode would despise. It really is just like, oh, what you're doing this mind altering substance to be at peace and love things. Ah, screw that. We're as discussed, this is a show written by and for veterans. And so that way they would hate all of this. It's, yeah, it's just such a, I don't know, I it's politically, I have to be, look askance at anyone who is like against like peace and love anti-war movements, because of course I would be, but it, it, there's just so much, there's so it's so harmless in the way it's anti those sort of things. It's so like ridiculous, I can't help but laugh, you know? I'd say another way that it's very clearly a product of the 60s is the strong influence of Western television. Uh, that is like westerns is in, in, is in westerns. They're a huge part of uh, the American TV landscape at this time. And you see it very strongly in the way the episode's constructed. It's about colonists who have gone off and they built a homestead. And a lot of the sets and props could just have, you know, walked right out of Gunsmoke, basically. I, they, they literally did. I have my memory alpha page pulled up and they used Gunsmoke sets for this. Yeah. You know, I'd forgotten that. I must have known that and then forgotten it and then repeated it as if it was a example um yeah well and it's also one of those uh one of those uh episodes that when you watch it you kind of you know star trek's famous for doing like nazi planet or rome planet or whatever but you forget that there are episodes like this where you know they just like casually drop into places which are you know very much um i mean you know the people's free republic of backlot um and and that's very much what this is i was slightly watching it this time around thinking about they've been here a year where did they get the bricks from that house from i mean you know for some reason i became very preoccupied with the construction of the buildings um they built that picket fence but why did they paint it white that doesn't seem like a priority for colonists i, I don't know um i find myself falling down a bit of a rabbit hole there but it's one of those it's one of those stories which definitely wears its influences yeah very clearly and of course westerns are are, are a huge part of that and it's also it's also an episode which is ever so slightly divided against itself so for all that we're sort of saying hey, you know well uh, you know peace and love and blah 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 uh, it's also because Star Trek has such a it has a sometimes uncomfortable or not uncomfortable inconsistent maybe is a better word uh, sort of relationship with kind of 1960s counterculture and the hippie movement um, so on the one hand you know it's a show which is trying to be incredibly progressive and, you know, we've talked many times on the uh, podcast before about, you know, Michelle Nichols and, and all this kind of stuff. So we're not going to, won't, I won't reiterate all that. But it's, it, you know, it, it tries to be genuinely progressive in the way that it's portraying society and the way that it, you know, it, it wants the world to be a better place. And yet it's got this weird hostility towards things like, you know, which, you know I, I mean, the, the colonists here really couldn't be much more uh, obviously hippies if they were sort of walking, walking around in, in kaftans with a great hookah, you know. Uh, it, it, it's it's a weird tension. Um, and it's a tension that, as far as 1960s Star Trek goes, the, the series never really manages to resolve. When it eventually gets to the 1980s and we get the next generation, it's much clearer where things uh, where things sit because we have this kind of post, post-scarcity utopia, which we don't have in the 1960s. And yeah, that weird tension between wanting to be really progressive and and uh and hip and modern and and also not really 
quite being able to get on board with all of that. I think it makes I think it makes the show genuinely fascinating. I think it's very interesting to see those two tensions sort of play out in this episode. But it's also at the service of something very different, which is somewhat becomes kind of a recurring theme in the series, uh, leaving paradise. Like the, Kirk is constantly encountering a situation where there's some sort of interfering force or God being or all powerful computer, which has arrested the development of a society. Now, this is usually framed in terms of like a reactionary cult or some sort of, or, you know, like the Nazi planet is basically a guy decided he should make a society as Nazis. And Kirk goes in and he smashes it. He smashes these paradises or these supposedly ideal worlds because they can't progress, they can't grow, they're locked in stasis. Like you're right that there's a you know like an anti-hippie element in the episode, but it's not anti-hippie in the sense of critiquing the war movement, certainly not overtly, but anti-hippie in the idea that uh, communes aren't going anywhere. They're not, they're not accomplishing anything, and, and the show uh, values the idea of. Uh, human accomplishment and human progress and you know going into thus outer space and so on yeah it's it's very invested in the idea that the accomplishments of the individual are kind of more important if what's interesting about this is that it doesn't bump up against communism as such even although you would think that might be a, a kind of logical way for this episode to go and we've kind of we've discussed that in in, in episodes like return of the archons um and and we've had other cold war parallels mm -hmm. going on as well we don't really have that in this episode it's it's much more about this idea of kind of the the sort of the individual and the uh, the way that humanity can can accomplish things because in a way like the attitude from kirk isn't all that surprising uh, and you know he he defines himself by his career by his ship i mean he you know his 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 d devotion towards his ship literally saves the day in this in this episode but at the same time you know it, you know there's that speech at the end about how we have to you know we can't we can't dance to the lute we have to march to the beat of the drama whatever it is um and that's also a weird tension for a show which often does go out of its way to kind of suggest that well you know the enterprise isn't a ship of war it's meant to be a ship of discovery and exploration and all this kind of thing it's 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 another one of those tensions i wonder how much of that in this episode comes from the fact that big chunks of it were rewritten by dc fontana from the original script from jerry saul um and whether one had a very particular approach and, and the other had another very particular approach and they've kind of both overlapped in the in the finished product because obviously dc fontana did a huge amount of uh, of rewriting in this script um so it'd be interesting to know where those tensions are coming from in terms of the like the creative forces behind the script itself that's a good question i mean just to speculate wildly based on pretty much nothing I would very strongly think that Puntana's rewrites uh, would be around the character of Spock, his tension, his dramatic focus, because that's a recurring theme in our writing, you know, The Naked Time, Journey to Babel, the animated episode Yesteryear. One of her strong points as a Star Trek writer is complicating Spock, his backstory. Uh, for example, she specifically mentions uh, the careers of both of his parents, who are characters, spoiler alert, she will later write in full in an episode. So it's possible that the, the kind of anti-hippie element 
um, which is more core to the concept of the episode than Spock. Like that's what the episode is structurally about. That was probably uh, not her. At a guess, I'm basing this on nothing. Like I, I like vaguely remember my copy of the Star Trek Compendium and reading that about this episode, and mostly it's stuff like um, someone one, once asked uh, the actress who played Spock's uh, mother much later, not in this episode, uh, what was Spock's other name? Like he's uh, Layla asks him here, what's what's your other name? Do you have any other name? And he says you couldn't pronounce it. And what she said very confidently was Harold. <laughs> I mean, that's a good answer. Um, yeah. But I mean, I mean, Kev, you're coming to this fresh. And I know that one of the things that uh, a lot of people were concerned about in 1967, when this episode was going to go out, was the breaking of the character of Spock, because it's the first time we see him, you know, really. I mean, we saw it a little bit in the naked uh, time, but it's the first time you really get to see him like having a proper love affair and like doing all the the, the happy smiley stuff. Um, so do you, do you think that it in inverted commas broke the character of Spock or do you think the character um, benefits from it? I definitely think the character benefits from it. Uh, it's just interesting that idea because my understanding of the Spock was I mean, beyond just cultural detrius and Futurama episodes and osmosis and all that. It, it was really was Star Trek 2009, a movie that leans into him being half human, that really shows him as emotional and uh, trying to keep it locked down, but with this rolling surface inside, uh, making out with a woman in that one too. So it's like, yeah, this feels like, it less feels like this broke Spock and more feel like this episode discovered Spock. Like he's not just the cold mm-hmm. computer man. He has the sensitive side to him. And I mean, Kirk and Spock's fight in the transporter room is going to be directly paralleled by that J.J. Abrams movie. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a, it feels so key to both those characters, that argument they have. And to like understand that Spock is like upset about these things that Kirk is saying, like under the surface the whole time, just keeping his cool. And yeah, I, you can believe that. Like, I, I, it's choose not obviously like a past love of Spock, but like, she had this crush on him and like he needed to loosen up to be with her. I could see that happening. I could definitely see this like as part of Spock's thing, like the repression of his personality and love and such and needing to have that coaxed out of him. So yeah, I think this is a great, this, this feels more like the Spock I know from my other outside of TOS experience. And like, it's a great step forward for the character. Not to talk too much about the uh, 2009 Abrams film, but something that I was very strongly impressed by it when it came out was how well it understood Spock. It has the whole arc of the character, particularly as was developed by DC Fontana. There are entire sections of that film that quote verbatim the animated episode Yesteryear that she wrote uh, a little after the conclusion of the original series. Its approach to Kirk is basically... We'll do whatever we want. We have a brand new character, pretty much. And its approach to Spock is we're going to take the traditional story, all the tensions of the character's lore and backstory, and we're just going to amp it up a bit, you know, to make it more kind of a blockbuster feel. So actually, you know, honestly, it's like the strongest thing in the film, the Spock stuff. The Spock stuff works so well. A lot of the other stuff, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but the Spock stuff is just, they really get that character, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, it's it's another one of those occasions where we have to give uh, so much credit to uh, Leonard Nimoy because he does such a good job of playing Spock 
being emotionally open um, without it ever seeming like a, a contradiction. And yeah, like those threads getting picked up by the um, 2009 movie just helps to show what like a confident performance this is and, and how much it, you know, how influential it becomes, I suppose. Um, I, I really, really do want to praise uh, Namoy here because he's so good. Um, you know, for, for, you know, I mean, DC Fontana's writing for the character is absolutely fantastic. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any dispute about that at all. But being able to give an actor this kind of uh, emotional openness when they're used to being kind of more buttoned down or sort of more in control in a less skilled performer, I think, you know, it would be so easy to go over the top. And although we haven't yet, we're definitely going to see William Shatner stray into that territory as we move <laughs> forward. Um, you know, we're a very pro Shatner podcast. He's been pretty much great up till now, but there's definitely going to come moments where we might have to question that stance. However, um, you know, and Namoy is such a skilled actor. He's able to get that emotional openness out there without it, yeah, ever seeming like a contradiction to the character that we know and love. But also, he has that ability to just, yeah, just project it without without going over the top and being able to strike that balance is such a key element of, of why this episode works so well. Uh, something Kev said earlier, uh, quite correctly, is that the episode is a comedy. And I think that's particularly good for Nimoy because he's able to play Spock in kind of a funny way. He doesn't oversell it, but it really works. You know, simple, like you might think he would immediately jump to calling Kirk Jim. And every time he calls Kirk Jim on the series, it is such a big deal. Like, like there's some other moments later in the show where it's like, oh my God. And here, not right away. Here at first, it's just, he's not calling him sir. You know, he's just being a little surly. So, so the informality is kind of gradually creep in. It's kind of an escalating element. And then just the physical comedy of him, you know, like hanging on the tree with a big grin on his face, like the most unspockian pose you could give him. And it really works, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm, per also memory alpha, the, the moment on the tree was an improvisation from like the director and Nimoy working it out on the day of, which I think is just, you know, one of those great, um, that that signs you have like a great director and crew if you can just like come up with ideas like that and put them in they fit so wonderfully and enhance what's already there I, I love that moment a lot yeah a lot of the comedy does does land here and again um, I, like Namoy is so good at being able to play it but Shatner is really good at being able to do that kind of he's you know he's a bit of a a bit of a straight man in this. He's just reacting to stuff rather than having any of the comedy to deliver himself. But he's really good at that. You know, he doesn't need to um, get all the funny lines or he doesn't need to get the comedy situations. It's just about Kirk sort of reacting to it. And 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 Shatner has really... I mean, we've had a few comedy scripts now and we've seen the series lean further and further into this kind of delivery. Uh, from him and and becoming much more comfortable with the idea that they can play towards comedy without undermining the characters and this is just like another step down that road Shatner gets a chance to do it Namoy gets a chance to do it but much more kind of explicitly and and you know we get a few other jokey scenes with the other characters that's all fine but uh yeah but it is good to see those things come forward because it demonstrates such a confidence the show really feels like it's firing at all cylinders at this point and it's confident enough that it's able to take these 
kind of things in its stride without worrying about um, having to undermine its characters, without worrying about alienating the audience, without risking kind of the viewing figures. And it, it really works. There's such a confidence about this script that it can just get on with what it uh, it wants to do. And again, I'm going to credit a lot of that confidence to, to DC Fontana, um, who, who just is very bold in the way that she writes and particularly the way that she writes for Spock. It's incredibly effective and it, it, it just, it makes it very difficult not to just kind of get swept along with the whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, she's written quite a few episodes we've seen so far and this is definitely, I think the strongest one we've seen. Uh, Charlie X and tomorrow's yesterday I'm seeing are the ones that she's written so far in season one and both solid scripts, but this one really like, cements her as the name uh for star trek going forward beyond roddenberry himself it, it she's just it's just such a strong piece of writing and there's so many ideas it's working with while also staying very true to the characters i think that's something we've noticed with all her stories is that like the character work is so strong mm -hmm. that's that's often uh her reputation particularly as, as the sort uh, as the story editor for the series she would often be doing rewrites, and her rewrites would almost invariably uh, give greater strength to the characters. Like she's responsible for the film version of *City on the Edge of Forever*, which is a which is a great script, but not the one we're here to talk about. Uh, sometimes in fandom, this would often come up actually as a criticism of her because she would write episodes where there's really great character stuff, but the science fiction ideas in the episode were either uh, not particularly good, or even not really there. Like a much later episode, Journey to Babel, has politics, but it's not like a science fiction concept in there. Some people took that kind of stuff very seriously. They would accuse her of basically turning Star Trek into a soap opera. To paraphrase arguments I remember from like 20 years ago on Star Trek forum boards. I have like a steel trap of things I remember people talking about in like 2001. And, you know, I think they're right. You know, she does lean into Star Trek a little bit as a soap opera with uh, Spock, with his backstory, with his personal tragedies and with the different dynamics of the characters. But I also think that's good. I think her focus on character, I think her focus on soap opera, I think these are elements of what made Star Trek, uh, the original series, a uh, legitimately successful show. It wasn't just a show with interesting science fiction ideas. It was a show with characters the audience cared about and wanted to tune in for week to week. That's how you build television. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, Galaxy Magazine. This is television. And this is a great story for the medium of television, I think. And it just carries through to the modern Star Trek as well. Um, what makes Strange New World so great is that it has such a strong cast of characters the only reason I am sticking with Discovery to the bitter end is for all that shows many faults mm -hmm. on her writing mm -hmm. side, the characters are so strong Absolutely. on a fundamental level. So yet without that, it's just like Trek is really nothing. Like you're there for the different crews of people who you're meeting and like they're becoming your fictional family. It's, and this is, I think a, this side of paradise is a big step into making Spock like part of like, your attachment, creating that attachment to him because he's now such a interesting and dynamic character. Another one of the interesting aspects about this episode, particularly around um, Spock and Kirk, is this is also an episode which is um, held up as as being extremely um, kind of slashable in terms of the relationship between Kirk and Spock. Um, the idea that it's the idea that it's, uh, you know, like Kirk can, can swan off and have all the love affairs he wants and the girl on every port. But see, when Spock does it, 
that really gets under his skin and he is jealous man he is not having it he wants his he wants his he wants his buyback and uh it there are a lot of slashable moments in this uh but it is definitely um an episode which is very easy to read kind of those homoerotic undertones in it and you know i mean apart from anything else you know the the physical fight the transporter room where where you know they have to grapple with each other so that they can be back together again and all this kind of stuff you know it's it's very i was gonna say it's very explicit i suppose it's not really because the whole point about slash is that it's it's kind of under the surface um and obviously this predates the actual invention of slash as a, as a term in a genre uh, but it's very easy yeah yeah we're definitely getting there and it's very easy to see why those episodes can be can be read in this way i mean you know i mean even even the kind of the ejaculating plants are incredibly phallic you know um and and, and yeah it, it's definitely an episode where like as the characters are being developed and particularly the way that dc fontana is writing them it gives this kind of alternative inter interpretation a, a degree of validity because the characters are more open because we are getting to sort of stretch out and and see them in different environments and different kind of in different kind of lights and when the barriers come down we see you know how kirk reacts because in the end you know he's upset when his crew are all trying to beam down to the ship and you know you have that oh this is mutiny yes sir it is and you know he looks a bit pissed off but he's not you know, he's he's not trying to you know like physically wrestle anybody to the ground or throw them in the brig or pointing a phaser or anything like that. Same with McCoy, like he's a bit sort of dippy and he's off to make his mint juleps or whatever and 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 whatever that shtick is. Um, that's fine. Like McCoy's like his his best human friend on the ship. He calls down to engineering for Scotty. He's not there. Like he looks annoyed, but none of it has the same visceral reaction like when spock starts to disagree when spock has got a problem then then there's a line that's been crossed there and it's just so easy to read that as a lover's tiff and i'm not i, I don't in any way mean that pejoratively i think it's one of the great things about this show is how open it, it can be to being interpreted that way but uh, uh, yeah this is this is definitely an episode which if you want to start looking at things like slash and slash readings i mean this is definitely one of the key texts not to be that guy but i do actually really enjoy being that guy but since you quoted him this is one of the only episodes of the entire series where leslie gets a line he's one of the omnipresent uh background redshirt characters throughout yeah. the show and he, he's the guy who kirk goes this is mutiny yes sir it is that's one of the only things he says in the run it's a fun little detail also, I don't think Scotty is in this episode at all. No, he's not. He's so, he's just, just Scotty, yeah, yeah. just just uh, Kirk calling yeah. the engineering. But he's yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a there's a reference, yeah. but he's not he's not there, which which is kind of clever, really. They acknowledge Scotty's gone, but they don't actually have to have James Doohan show up. Like this isn't like uh, a lot of later TV shows where like half the uh, core team are main cast members, like in the Next Generation. It's really just at this point Shatner and Nimoy. And then in season two, they add DeForest Kelly and everyone else is kind of uh, maybe this episode, maybe not. Yeah, back. I, well, first I was going to say the, the, this is mutiny. Yes, sir. It is like back to Kirk's the comedic moments. That's such a great like a lot of that stuff in that section of this episode is just him being con too confused to be angry, mm -hmm. which Shatner plays really well. Um, really like that. But I also want to go back to the slash idea, talking about how we're still ways off from slash but maybe not so much anymore we are six months out from the from the publication of spockanalia which is like the big initial trek fanzine um 
I can do research very quickly and figure this stuff out. And I just find that very fascinating how, yeah, uh, this this episode airs and six months later, we are getting uh, Kirk Spock fan oh, yeah. uh, and like that's it, like, and obviously it's a concept that predates Star Trek. It's a concept being developed in parallel in Japan at the same time. Like you can't say, and this is where it started, but it's, it's where but it's, this is where the term comes from. Like yeah. slash fic comes from the Star yeah. Trek fandom, just like uh, mythology episodes come from. Um, sorry, better example: shipping comes from the X Files. The term shipping. Obviously, people ship before the right. X Files, but that's where we get it. So you're right. Obviously, it's just an invented, but yeah. you know, that's where the word is from. It it's such a public and modernization of it that you can give it its laurels for sure, and. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating how quickly this is already like snowballing these like the the fan investment in this show. And I can definitely see how an episode like this would play into that, would talk that would create that kind of interest when it's so character focused and such in that like almost romantic way as we're discussing. Not to just keep saying DC Fontana, but I do want to say that particularly I've already discussed her role in Spock. But she also particularly is very good at Spock's relationship with Kirk over the course of her episodes. Like, she also has some, not to run ahead to, like, City in the Edge of Forever, but there's a beautiful moment in that episode where a character notices how close Kirk and Spock are and even notices the words Spock doesn't say to Kirk. Like, they understand that relationship so well. And here, it's the emotional core of the episode is Spock and Kirk. That's why they have the big fight. Everything builds to that. So even if you were to ignore the slash fix stuff, even if you were to ignore the homoerotic tension, this is the most meaningful emotional relationship these two men have with each other. You can't really look at this episode and say that there's anyone else in their lives who means as much to each other as, as they do each other. At least not on the ship. Yeah, I think now is the time to talk about that fight they have in more detail. It's vicious what Kirk says to him. He really gets under his skin in a way like only a best friend can. Just he has all the tools to really dismantle him like that. And obviously he apologizes afterwards. And like like I didn't and like you get the sense he is being truthful. He didn't really mean it. He just knows what he has to say to break the spell or whatever. But it is so like like and it almost proves their love in a sense that Kirk can be so cruel to him because he just knows exactly how to push his buttons. And it's what makes it so heartbreaking because you know it's really hurting Spock, even if it has to happen. It's such a... And Shatner and Nimoy act it beautifully. It's a real showcase for them. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the whole thing about, you know, Spock in this episode is, um, if you'll forgive this reading also, is that, you know, essentially he's coming out. Um, He's not doing it in the sense of being gay, but he's coming out in terms of being able to be emotionally available um and at the end when he's had his fight with kirk you know he's basically back in the closet again you know he's had to become buttoned down um it's it's so easy to read that as analogous to the way that you know gay people had to live in the 60s um when when things were still um things were still um illegal or or only just legalized so yeah it's 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 another it's another way of reading but i I agree with what you say kev like it that that validity to like like it's your best friend it's the person that loves you that knows how to get under your skin the most like yeah that's such a good reading of that of that scene and yeah you're right about shatner and amoy as well they just play it perfectly and 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 shatner is 
really good at doing that viciousness as well, which, you know, we've seen him be strong and we've seen him being strong-minded or, or, or strong-willed with, with characters when he needs to blow up an alien computer or, you know, yell at somebody until they do the right thing. But we don't really ever get to see him being cruel and here we get to see him being intentionally cruel and Shatner is also really really good at playing that it, and uh, uh, going back a little bit he's also just like so good at the Shatnerian moments uh when he's trying to break the uh flower's curse on his own and he is just about to leave the ship and just he can't do it and he's just like hunched over that console like squinting and yelling and like I can't do this. I have emotions. I have thoughts. I can't leave. It's in a in an actor not willing to go that far. It would just be ridiculous because Shatner has so much commitment. Like he is not phoning it in this week. It it works. It's a really effective moment. Uh, it could be so easy to like mock as well, just because he's putting himself so on the line and being so ridiculous, but. You just gotta like accept it and just love how much effort he's putting into it. It's I love that moment. Absolutely. Um, something that I think uh, is very important for a show like Star Trek is, I mean, an actor doesn't necessarily have to have theatrical training, but like Shatner did, but really willing to go to a certain theatrical space as as he very frequently does makes it work because it, you know it's a science fiction show, it's an action show, but so many of the key scenes are just two characters talking something out as you know, as we already discussed later in the episode. And Shatner is always willing to like really get a speech or a moment and give it everything. Just let it all out. And more often than not on Star Trek, I think that really works. And I think in this episode, he's great. I mean, we mentioned the march uh, to the drum speech, for example, but I remember uh, anecdotally back when I was on the Trek forums, that someone talked about how their mother would look at the speech at the end of the episode and see it as kind of a life lesson. Not in, in the sense of like military, but in the sense of the importance of finding meaning in your life in this world that isn't paradise and to try and make it better than for the people who come after you. And that speech works because he delivers the hell out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th there, is, there is one thing I'm going to have to give this episode... Uh, a bit of a demerit for, um, which is a bit of a shame, um, but oh well, Jill Ireland is terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's really bad. Apart from anything, the first time we see her uh, on, on screen, focus has never been so soft. It's ludicrous the way that she walks into... Uh, they must have, must have used up America's entire supply of Vaseline for 1967 for that. It's Star Trek. Um, they always use Vaseline, you know? But yeah, you're oh, right. oh, but yeah. this was this was pretty extreme, even by Star Trek standards. Um, and it's a bit of a shame because she's 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 not very good. Um, in in a way that almost slightly plays uh, to the advantage of the episode because we can, if you if if we choose to read it that way, we can see that Spock's not really interested in her. She's leading him astray. She helps him to come out of the closet, but when it comes, yeah, to yeah, you know, it's yeah. really. It's Kirk that he cares mm. about, not this, um, not this um, slightly weak actress. Um, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Like all the other colonists are fine, all the regulars are great, uh, but yeah, Jill Ireland is a bit of a, she's a bit of a weak link in the episode, unfortunately. Uh, th that introduction moment also has an insanely ludicrous music cue, 
that oh yes <laughs> maybe isn't used before for when kirk notices a hot person but i cannot yeah. it, it still is just ridiculous yeah. i feel like those scenes work mostly because nimoy sells them so well he sells his eternal tone right his uh self-denial like when he brings her up on the ship and she knows that he's he's gone again that's a great scene and it's a great scene because of the way nimoy sells it although you know if you've been skimming memory alpha's uh background pages you've probably seen that her husband was uh on set when she was kissing and he was very concerned about the kissing scenes and now you can go mm-hmm. look up who her husband is because it's uh someone kind of famous yes yeah, dave mccallum right oh hmm. yeah. yeah it's kind of a weak episode for guest mm-hmm. stars overall i'm not also sold by frank overton's performance of sandoval he's better than ireland but it's not but not by any significant stretch uh unfortunately yeah he uh He's just, he does the kind of spaced out, creepy presence well, but he's not really bringing much to the table. He just has to be like kind of a colonist in a Western town who's also implicitly right. a scientist, which Jill Ireland's character, Layla Colomi, is also a scientist, although that doesn't come up much. Very self focused scientist. Um, yeah, if you have a look at, uh, if you look at Frank Overton's uh, like TV career, it's almost exactly what you would expect from somebody like that. So, Okay, Star Trek, fair enough. The Invaders, 12 O'Clock High, The Fugitive, The Virginian, Bonanza, Perry Perry Mason, The Twilight Zone. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, he's that kind of um he's that kind of actor but yeah. i mean he he uh he he died not long after this uh right. being shot so uh yeah i guess he never really got the chance to to take his career any further i mean and yeah in film you got to killing mockingbird like some other and so a lot of things i don't recognize but still i mean that's a solid work a day career but yeah it's yeah, a shame and uh yeah i mean Though you would have to say that of all the actors who were in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, who later went on to appear in Star Trek, uh, Clark Peters is a much better one. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) I was mentioned earlier about the uh, difficulty in setting up a colony, like where they get the bricks and everything. Uh, And not to get into that, but another common criticism of like the plot mechanics of the episode is what are these spores doing? The spores are not actually from the planet. It's mentioned that they've been drifting around in space. These plants go from planet to planet in space to find Berthold rays. That's not something that really uh, stands up to much analysis. I think you could probably defend the colony thing by saying they may have brought bricks with them (laughs) on on the ship or something like that. But the logic of, of how the spores came to the planet is a little weak, which... I don't think really greatly matters because the rest of the episode works so well, but I felt it worth mentioning. Yeah. And it's weird that they changed that detail because in the original script I'm reading about, like the spores were native to the planet in a cave and like, they just didn't know what they were doing. I mean, there's a little more intelligence to them. I guess in this episode, they also don't know what they're doing because they're just plants. They don't, it's fully automatic. There's a little more intelligence in the original script where they are just trying to be benevolent, kind of like in shore leave, just, this benevolent, un- ununderstandable force that uh, didn't know it was causing harm to these people. But yeah, it it's sort of, you take some of those details out and I get that they're extraneous details, but then it d- does sort of lead to that, that just raises further questions kind of thing. <laughs> There's just, yeah, just a lot of, uh, a lot of blanks here that don't ne- necessarily need to be filled in, but do kind of tug at the mind. 
Although I, I do think, um, as you uh, referenced there, the plants, their ultimate agenda, uh, one of the strengths of the episode is the idea that these plants give you happiness, and the only way to defeat them is to, you know, access your emotional torment. It's an idea which has recurred successfully in subsequent TV series. I'm just now, not to mention uh, Rick and Morty, but one of the best episodes of that show is about characters realizing the only people who are genuine are the people who they have bad memories about. The idea that uh, right. the pain, the emotional difficulty of knowing each other is more real than just being happy all the time. Mm. It's a strong metaphorical element rather than a strong science fiction element, which again does play into some criticisms of DC Fontana from the fan base, but it's great television, which is even more important to me. Yeah, I, it is interesting. It's a very of its time perspective, the idea that, well, you can't just sit around happy on a farm your whole life and not accomplish anything. We are mankind. We need to be pushing forward. And I think there's an explicit quote about it that I'm going to try to find the memory alpha, but it is Kirk basically saying like, what, you're just going to sit around and be happy and not be miserable? <laughs> like, innovating and discovering and like creating society and it's it's just funny how that contracts with like my perspective and i going to assume the perspective of many a uh, millennial um and gen z and i not to exclude you jj maybe you believe this as well i'm sorry to bring <laughs> that up but um yeah like i would be very like as long as maybe give me some access to streaming movies and tv but i would be very happy sitting on a farm and just not doing anything much for the rest of my life, just living, letting, living, letting live. Yeah, I just think that's such a generational difference where it's unfathomable to these um, silent generation, I believe, writers, where it's just like, we can't imagine a world where people are just silent and stagnant and uh, twiddling their thumbs. We need this we need the almost manifest destiny idea of cultural progress. Uh, very much. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's literally that line, isn't it? At the end of the episode, we've done nothing here, no accomplishments, right. no progress, three years wasted. Yeah. So, you know, they make it very clear what side of the, uh, what side of the fence they're coming down on there. Though, you know, it is an agricultural colony. Like they're not people who decided we're going to go off and, found a self-sufficient commune. If that was their goal, you know, they've, they've achieved it. They had a society where they could eat their own food, grow their own food. They didn't need anyone else. They could just sit around. But if they were checking in on a commune, they probably wouldn't be so surprised. But if you're checking in on a colony, which theoretically would be feeding other planets, it would seem very unusual. So I think you're right about the silent generation stuff, but also the mechanics of the plot it makes a lot of sense to be suspicious of this situation. It doesn't add up, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, that, that's almost going the horseshoe theory all the way to the left wing. The idea that, oh, this colony is not supporting other people. They're just out for themselves and self-sustaining just for themselves. That can't happen. They need to be contributing to society. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's also... Um, like particularly in the first season of Star Trek, something it loves, um, and to a certain extent, I think this is a dead of the movie Forbidden Planet, which is a big influence on the show, is they go to a colony and something has gone wrong. Typically, there's like one survivor or something else has gone awry, and it's a mystery. And whoever is there surviving is hiding the truth of what's going on. It's kind of... It, like, I think all these silent generation things are correct, but it's also like a structural 
way the episode is built towards those kinds of plots. Star Trek really likes plots where there's a colony, where there's something wrong, and they won't tell you. Right. And it's such a good structure. It's just fascinating to me that the, the what's wrong is, oh, they're happy? Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Truth they. Yeah. And Trump. the idea of, oh, all they did was, like, sustain themselves and enjoy themselves for three years and didn't accomplish anything? That's... 30 years of my life. That's like, I'm not accomplishing much. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a very introspective. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that. Um, I've watched a lot of Star Trek. That's an accomplishment of a sort. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Of, of, of a sort, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, 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 it's again, it's, it, it brings us around to what we were talking about at the top of the episode, which is that, that curious tension uh, between wanting to be progressive and then unable to see its own way out of the, the kind of the societal structures in which this this episode exists. Yeah, and I think it's just something we've talked about a lot in Star Trek in general, where um, you there's the limits to how progressive you can be, I think, at any point in time. Because um, you're still locked into the perspective you were born into, socialized into, and think, like... And to maybe put a button on this conversation, and we've talked about this in relation to Strange New Worlds and other modern Trek as well, there will probably be a time 30, 50 years from now where people look back on those episodes and say, wow, they're really trying for something progressive and they miss the mark in these certain ways that we even fathom. So yeah, it's just, it's, I just find that all very interesting and fun to engage with. Absolutely. I, I, have, I have two uh, thoughts about Lost in Space, which uh, will make sense in a moment. Uh, you were talking earlier, uh, much earlier in the episode about how they don't, how the series kind of has a mixed reputation, mixed uh reaction to hippies which is something that it keeps going back to uh but this is also partly the realities of being a 60s television production being written by adults of yeah exactly most of them are very mixed reactions there's a there's an episode of lost in space uh, i once clipped a clipped it from twitter where uh, a hippie goes up to um guy williams character and says you know i we just like want peace and everything and he immediately just goes for his gun he like just whips his gun out because he's sick of these guys. Speaking of Guy Williams, um, he's a good example of something that Shatner wasn't, is that as the series progressed more and more into comedy, as Lost in Space progressed more and more into comedy, um, he became more and more of a sideline part of the series, although it was originally built with him as the lead character, whereas William Shatner uh, can very successfully straddle both the dramatic and comedic parts of the show. It's funny how often Lost in Space comes up in these discussions. It's a, it's a show that always feels like it's lurking in the background of Star Trek somehow. Um, but I don't know. I I would say it literally is. It was the one other space show uh, on an American network in the 1960s. Like, we could compare Star Trek to uh, Ground Patrol Orion, for example. You know, the German series, which was also produced in the 1960s. You could compare it to Doctor Who. But Lost in Space was the one which the writers of the show would probably have watched, watched each other. They shared occasionally uh, cast members and screenwriters and so on. So there's a lot of symbiosis between the series in some ways. Yeah, there's there's definitely going to be those uh, those overlaps with the with the cast and writers, and we will be we'll be getting to those uh, in the future. But I think for now we can probably uh, move to wrapping up 
uh, our discussion of of this episode and and yeah it's just it's just a really really good slice of television it's it's a great episode there's some great performances in it um and and we get to really spend time exploring our characters you know what else do you want from star trek i i can't think of anything else yeah this is uh we'll get into scores in just a moment but this is, it feels like a very uh typical almost sounds too harsh but just what you want from it a really down the middle uh hit from the show well, as I said at the, at the start, this has occasionally been an episode I've picked as my favorite ever of the series. And while I vacillate on that, I do think uh, the Spock stuff is really wonderful. It is a great uh, use of character comedy and has good thematic stuff with the, with the stuff about Paradise. So it was a real pleasure to revisit this episode. I just rewatched it before we uh, recorded this. And, you know, it was like seeing something I've loved all my life and come back to it again so i'm a big fan good well in that case and and since you're so uh fulsome with your prayer william uh why don't you why don't you give us your score for us for this episode what would you give it out of 10 uh scoring four episodes of the series let's say nine and theoretically i would not give anything a 10 for the purposes of scoring just to be obtuse so that's a very high score fair enough yeah, what would you like to give it? Yeah, I have broken the 10 ceiling, the balance of terror. Um, I guess, unfortunately, I don't feel as strongly as that, but I still really love this episode. Um, I joked earlier about how that last line, oh, we didn't talk the last line. I just want to, I mean, we we talked a lot around that last line, how this is the only time Spock has been happy and how devastating that is. Um, I just want to share one more thought from friend of my own life and also friend of this podcast, Ellie, who just had the point out when I was Hector watching this that yeah that really colors his relationship with Tapring and Strange New Worlds in a new light. If this is the only time he's been happy so far, and that was in the past, and that and that's a that's a Fontana character as well, Tapring. So it's after she writes this, she decides, you know what, he has an arranged marriage. Let's just say, uh, not to jump ahead, but the relationship with Tapring on the original series is a lot colder than Strange New Worlds. But go on. Yeah, I, I've been led to believe I am looking forward to getting to a that and necessary fallout in Strange New Worlds as well. Um, but yes, I just that's just such a funny detail to think about in the ways these continuities interact. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. Uh, I am going to give this an eight. Um, that last line did not fully raise me up to a nine, but I still, and I don't want to indulge in these half points that JG likes. <laughs> so I am going to stick with uh, eight. It's a very strong eight, though. Well, I am going to indulge in half points and I'm going to give it eight and a half. Um, one other thing about that last line is I like that it's the last line. Like nobody takes the piss out of Spock for saying it. It's left hanging there. And I really appreciate that restraint as well, because we've had, to, even at this point, we've had so many bridge scenes, which are just, you know, laugh, joke away, blah, 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 all the rest of it. And that line is just, is just left to sit there. So I, I do really appreciate that as well. So yeah, I'm going to give it eight and a half out of 10, I think. Um, well, I think we can then leave the episode there and move on to recommendations. I want to recommend uh, the shorts created by one Buster Keaton. You probably know the name as one of the famous silent comedy actors. Uh, a podcast I love, Blank Check, that has been, I believe, mentioned a couple of times in this podcast. Uh, they're about to start covering the work of Buster Keaton. And while they won't be directly covering all of his shorts, those stick to his feature films for the most part. I wanted to watch his shorts as many as I could before they started into his features uh, to get a good grounding of where he was coming from. And I haven't seen all of them yet, but I've seen enough of basis that I can recommend a few of them. Um, 
And these are the same few that were recommended to me already from the top by uh, for another friend of this podcast, Chris Dole, who is on our Balance of Terror episode. But um, Cops One Week and The Goat are three insanely funny, insanely good shorts that Buster Keaton did all under a half hour. All these shorts are much under a half hour. They all have such like dynamic stunts, insane bits of physical comedy, stuff that should have killed him. It's a miracle it doesn't. But just, and you would never see it again because it would kill people. Um, it's truly just, you can't see it anywhere else, what he does. It is deft and incredible and jaw-dropping things that are also incredibly funny. He has such a fun and witty sense of humor. I highly recommend his shorts. They're all on the Criterion channel for US-based people, at least. I don't know if there's a Criterion channel in UK or where else you might be able to find them. Also, I'll all public domains. So I'm sure searching them on Google, you'll get some hits. Uh, yeah. So one week cops and the goat are like the three that have really stopped me so far, but I haven't gone wrong with any of them yet. They've all been so delightful. So yeah, Buster Keaton shorts, check them out. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to do one of those. This isn't a recommendation recommendations. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Star Trek Picard, uh, which has just wrapped its final season um, about a week or two before uh, this recording. It's interesting. Um, I don't know that I would regard it as necessarily a complete success, which is why this is a this is an interesting rather than a full blown recommendation. Um, but there's some there's some really great performances in it. Um, there's lots of good stuff for Seven of Nine to do, and that just means that I automatically have to praise this. I'm sorry, that's just compulsory. Um, and it's it's definitely of the three seasons of Picard, it's definitely the most interesting one. I've got a whole bunch of expanded thoughts on it on my blog, which will get plugged at the end of the episode as usual. Uh, so if you really want to go into a lot of detail about what I think about it, um, all that information is there. Um, but it's interesting, and it's mostly it's mostly fun and watchable in a way that the first two seasons kind of struggled with. It's not perfect, um, and it's a bit frustrating. I think the whole series is probably very frustrating. In fact, if I had to pick one adjective to describe the entire series, I think frustrating would probably be at the top of the list. Um, so, yeah, this isn't that full-throated recommendation or anything, but if you are... I mean, you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, but if you're invested in, in, in the, that part of the Star Trek franchise, um, then it's it's definitely worth a watch. And if if nothing else, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's an entertaining show, episode to episode. Flawed, for sure, but, but definitely also a show that's worth spending a little bit of time with. Yeah. It is almost of a shame that the one new Trek show we really think is of substance to discuss here is Strange New Worlds. I guess it also is the original series connection, but uh, hmm. yeah, I, I, there's just not much else to discuss with the other ones. Uh, yeah. Lower Decks and Prodigy are very, I think, are strong, but there's just not much substance there. And uh, discovering Picard, and, mm-hmm. well, we, we've alluded to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would agree that I love that Seven of Nine was part of Picard, and if they do another series with her, I'll absolutely watch that. But Picard, the series, uh, my short version of it is, is I'm just disappointed with it. Uh, every season has some elements that work, uh, some that don't, and more stuff doesn't work than does work. And some of the best stuff that they've done, they then walk back, which just leaves me a bitter taste in my mouth overall. Uh, I do have a recommendation now. Sorry, sorry about earlier. Uh, since I uh, mentioned it earlier, and since I think it might actually interest people who are listening to this, for example, they enjoy 1960s uh, science fiction television in outer space, 
with spaceship crews going around doing things. I'm going to assume that there's some interest here for the podcast listeners. I would have to recommend, I would have to recommend, and apologies for my pronunciation, Ground Patrol, Die Fantastischen Aventur des Raumschiff Orion, or Ground Patrol Orion, or in English, Space Patrol Orion. You can find whole episodes of the show. There are only six episodes, so it's not a very long recommendation on YouTube with English subtitles. And if you're in Germany, you may be able to find streaming somewhere else, but I have no idea where that would be. It's also available um, on home video releases if you want to get it that way. And you can then download subtitles to the home video release and do something like that. Uh, It's just a really fun show. It's about a group of people who were hotshot team of space military who get demoted to doing space patrol because their captain keeps disobeying the rules. He's a cocky, kind of vaguely Captain Kirk-like character, although no influence because it was made about the same time. They run into some hostile aliens, or they fight, and they also have kind of uh, fun, silly episodes. There's one episode where a science fiction novelist is a guest on the ship, which annoys everybody. They visit an episode where women rule over men. You know, classic kind of sci-fi stuff. It's it's just really fun. It's just wonderful television. And I, I really like it. And a lot of people in Germany like it, which is how I heard about it. I actually heard about this from German Star Trek fans on the same forum I was mentioning a couple of times. So, anyway. Crown Patrol Orion. That sounds wonderful. Excellent. Good stuff. Right. Well, and I think we can probably manage to call the episode there. But just before we go, uh, William, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, I am a member of the podcast Flying Podcastle in the Sky, which you can get in most places where you find podcasts like uh, streaming services. Uh, What we do on that podcast is every time we have an episode, we discuss one anime and one thing from Western culture, often a film or a book. We have an upcoming episode, which may be out by the time this comes out, which uh, um, compares the anime series Rose of Versailles with the uh, film by Sofia Coppola, Maria Antoinette. And I thought that was quite a good episode. You can find me on Twitter at at VK underscore HM, a very easy and sensible name to use. I'm also known as Valandar, if that helps your search engine any. And if you have any questions about Star Trek or any conversations you want us to talk about Star Trek, I'm usually available very specifically for that. All right. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at Talking Trek to You. Or sorry, at Talk Trek to You. Um, I am also at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I also frequently guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser. Uh, you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, uh, going through the Beatles track by track. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us this week, William. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. And we can leave it there for now. Next episode, we are going to be encountering the devil in the dark. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. (laughs) 